Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I missed you all last week. And it was, I was in San Antonio, and it wasn't even pretty. It was rainy and overcast and gross. So it wasn't even worth it, you know. Um, glad to see you all. I'm glad Eric was able to fill in for me. If you haven't gotten to know Eric yet, he's really a great guy. Um, and he's got lots of great ideas for particularly our formation stuff. And so I look forward to what he's going to be doing here over the next few years. Um, but grateful that he was able to fill in for me. Let's open with a prayer and get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the rain that cleanses the earth. And we ask you to fill us with your spirit. Help us to make space for your spirit that we may be inspired and renewed by the work of your son, Christ, that we may be sent from these doors out of the world to do the work you've given us to do, that we may extend your kingdom and invite every person we meet to know you. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> I love when people give me the eye like they're not going to come in that door. <laughs> so chapter 17. This chapter, Luke is slowly giving us shorter and shorter chapters, which actually gives us a little more time in here, which is good. Chapter 17, we are nearing the end of sort of the narrative storytelling, and we're going to be very soon into Holy Week and Death Resurrection time. And so this is, we've only got a couple chapters left, and this chapter today is really set up in three sections. The first is some discussion of humility. The second is a focus on gratitude, but it's the healing of the lepers. And then the third section is the coming of the kingdom. So we're going to start off with this idea of humility. In this first section of chapter 17, Luke has collected a few sayings of Jesus, right? They kind of come rapid fire. And he introduces this by having Jesus give some context around why it's important to actually be humble. Now, if you've read chapter 17, which obviously everyone has, then you know that it opens, not only opens, but it's all kind of harsh. I mean, this is not necessarily an easy chapter. This isn't the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son sort of stuff, as if those were easy. These are a bit more, it's rough, right? Jesus is really pushing on his disciples. If we think about this in context, Jesus has gathered these disciples. People are following him, and he knows what's coming, right? He knows he will be gone soon. And so he's really starting to push hard on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to actually come to God through Christ. And it's not easy. And I think today we're going to see just how difficult it might be. So this begins, verse 1. Jesus says, occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. 
So we'll pause to say, what is a millstone, right? How many of you have ground wheat into flour, right? If you haven't, which I was looking for someone to raise their hand. Last time I did that, someone was like, sure, I've been a shepherd. Um, so I wasn't gonna say your name. Um, but millstones are these giant rocks in the shape of circles, right, like wheels. And they are, they're pushed around. It's almost like a gigantic mortar and pestle idea where they put the wheat, the bits of wheat that are ground into flour, and they're huge. These are not small things. I mean, a stone of, of any size would be very heavy. These are impossibly heavy. Like, no way could you even pick one up, let alone if it was strung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, you're toast, right? So what Jesus is saying is, it's a lot better for that to happen to you than for you to get in the way of anyone else coming to God. What he's really doing here is emphasizing his inclusivity, right? If we think back to the first 16 chapters, we have example after example of Jesus extending God's kingdom invitation to every person. And every time that happens, somebody challenges his rationale, right? Because he must not mean that really everyone can get to God, right? Because some people are good and some people are bad, or at least some people are better than other people, and Jesus constantly says over and over again, no. Everyone is invited to come to God. Everyone is invited to be part of God's kingdom. Now, it doesn't mean that it's cheap to become part of God's kingdom, but it is free, right? Everybody can be a part of this. It does not matter who you are or what you've done. To that end, when Jesus talks about causing one of these little ones to stumble, this is not physical little ones, right? These are not children trying to get to Jesus. These are the people who may have never really heard God's message. So remember the differentiation here between the Jews who have inherited a very thorough, rich tradition and those who have not been a part of that tradition at all. And Jesus is trying to say, yes, you may understand something about God, but it might even be more difficult for you who understand, who think you understand a lot about God to actually receive something so radically open. The people who have not had any sort of tradition might actually be easier because they're not having to relearn. They're just learning for the first time. But if you can think about the people physically jockeying for position around Jesus, right? You ever go to like a concert or see if you see a celebrity and you see people rush them sort of thing, right? And you're trying to get as close as you can to the person you think has some value, which celebrities don't, but you're trying to get close to them and people will like throw in elbows, right? To try and get, and then you've got the physical need to actually hear Jesus, right? Say there are a couple hundred people around Jesus. He's not walking around with a microphone. He's just talking. And so if you're too far away from him, you may not even really be able to hear him. And so if you can put yourself in this scene, there could be way more than the number of people in this room, right? And people want to be close enough to hear him, maybe close enough to even touch him, right? This is, this is like a magic man. And people want to be near him. And he's looking out. And it's likely 
that all of the social stratification is put on display within that group, right? People who are dressed a little better, maybe carry themselves a little better, people who have some authority that the world gives in that scene. If you are a poor person, you've been trained to be humble, right? Poor people are not really gonna be pushing up to the front of this line because they know they could get in trouble. And Jesus is looking out at this group of people and saying, listen, everybody can be a part of this kingdom. And those of you who think you're better, maybe you're even physically closer to him, are not. And if you get in the way, so it could be get in the way emotionally or spiritually, it could actually be physically get in the way of these little ones, those out there whose faith is very immature, right? People who are developing a relationship with God. If you cause them to stumble, it's better that you be thrown into the sea. That's harsh stuff. And he keeps going. This is even, this is even worse. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. Forgiveness is so hard, right? We sort of talked about that in here a little bit. It's easier to delve into the idea of forgiveness when we can actually have a conversation with each other and everyone can speak the difficulty of forgiveness. But listen to what he says. First off, if a disciple sins, you rebuke them. How's that work for you? Right? How often have you said to someone, man, that was a bad sin. You should repent. <laughs> now, you probably think it, but how often do you say it, right? The person who says that's the person that does not get invited to the party, right? Does not hear the secrets because they're just too high and mighty, right? Jesus is saying, you rebuke one another. Not ugly rebuke, but we lean on each other, right? That's what I call holy friendships. People that you might not even like as much as other people, but you know that their relationship with you, that their friendship with you is really valuable, right? That person who you may not even hang out with, but when something gets really hard or life gets rough or you've got to make a big decision, you know those couple people that you can go to, they will actually tell you what they think. And you can trust that what they say to you is thoughtful, and generous, right? May not be easy, but you want them, you want their feedback because in some way they've proven themselves to be this honest character. And that's really the kind of rebuking that Jesus is talking about here. You know in scripture where it says iron sharpens iron? Iron does not sharpen iron if they just kiss each other, right? If you think of like a blacksmith, the way you actually make something stronger is you beat it. Don't beat one another. But there is this idea that we are stronger when we actually kind of, you know, grind one another into something better, right? If we, out of faith, push on one another to be better than we are, then that's a good thing. 
And it goes both ways, right? So when Jesus says, disciples sin, you must rebuke the offender, and if there's repentance, you must forgive. The forgiveness matters. But my guess is that most of us, ah, really all of us, even if we can intellectually get beyond this idea, there is this sense of fairness in forgiveness, right? Make one mistake, totally, you can be forgiven, no worries. Make that same mistake a few times, maybe forgiveness, right? But if you just can't stop doing that thing, then forget it, right? There's no forgiveness here. You know better, right? How often do we say that, especially to our children, right? Or to grandchildren? You know better. I mean, I say it to my kids all the time. Like, make, make a mistake. Don't make the same mistake, right? I mean, learn from them. Except, nope. You make a mistake and you sin. Forgiveness is yours if you are sorry. But then we do the thing where like, well, you're not really sorry if you do it again, right? <laughs> this is hard. This is hard for us who hold up that kind of economy, right? Where like forgiveness is, is only so, goes only so far. This is really hard because I have to think many of you in this room, I, I have not had this happen yet because my children are young. But how many of you in this room have had something like this with someone super close to you, like a child, where they've done something that is not good for them, and you may stick with them for a while, but at some point, what do we call this? Tough love, right? You make a decision, this is hard, right? We, in a way, I think, and we're gonna get to this, community matters. Right? You on your own cannot be Jesus to everybody. Right? And I often say, I am not Jesus. Like when I make a decision and someone is not happy, that's all right. I am not Jesus. Right? And neither are you. But in a community setting, we all together can sustain one another. And so I would never tell you that I think you should be a pushover or enable bad behavior or anything like that. However, there might be a point at which you come where you say, it can no longer be me, right? Somebody has gone too far afield or too far off the rails. I can no longer save them, right? It's beyond me. And that's when we trust our community, right? That we have surrounded ourselves with enough people who are committed enough to love everyone enough to where no one really falls off, right? This is hard, but it's why we do church, right? You can't be Christian by yourself. We need one another in order to really do this right. So we get into these warnings, so to speak, about the little ones, right? Responsibility for those of us who may be a bit farther down the path not to judge or trip up those who are trying to make it as well. Now, Jesus is extremely inclusive, right? Everybody has the opportunity to come in. And we can default as good Christians to believing that we have somehow made it beyond a line where we no longer repent ourselves. And that's where the strength of a church, particularly a liturgical church like ours, reminds us every year 
We are not beyond that, right? We are not better than needing to repent. We have seasons like we're in right now with Lent that remind us all, all of us, that repentance is this literal turn or return toward God. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I turn again every day, right? I've done something and I need to turn again, right? And kind of make that decision every day. At least, hopefully we make that decision once a week when we're sitting in church. But even if we miss that, maybe it's once a year, right? We take seriously this idea that we have somewhat strayed because we're human, right? And our humanity draws us away from the divine. It's just the way it works. We are so easily drawn away that it's very difficult for us without intentional repentance to maintain the strong relationship with God. And so Jesus is encouraging this repentance. And when the disciples hear these words, they know that this is going to be hard. And so did you catch what they asked for? More faith, right? Jesus says all this stuff that's really hard, and the disciples immediately say, well, then please increase our faith, right? We're not going to be able to do this as we are, so please increase our faith. And then Jesus does this brilliant thing where he flips the idea of faith around. Now, I bet if we were to all just, just offhandedly say what we think faith is, most of us would likely give a response that somehow implies strength, right? That strong faith, how often do people say that, right? That it's the faith that helps us accomplish discipleship. And what Jesus says here is something a little different. Jesus flips this idea of faith completely around. And N.T. Wright, in our commentary, uses the image of a window to describe what faith really is. Because ultimately, what Jesus is saying is, you do not need great faith. You need faith in a great God. And faith is nothing more than the way you see that great God. And I love Wright's image of a window because it does not matter if that window is six inches or six feet big. If you can see through it, you can see the greatness of God. That is all you need, faith in a great God. It reminded me when N.T. Wright was using that image, are any of you familiar with the Aventine keyhole in Rome? So yeah, a few of you. There is this place, it's a hill overlooking the Vatican in Rome. And the Knights of Malta set up a compound, so to speak, on the edge of this hill. It's a beautiful place, but they don't really let anyone in. And so what has happened over the years is these big wooden doors that stand in the gate of this compound, there is one of those old school, like skeleton style keyholes, right, that you can look through. And if you look through this keyhole, and I mean like, look through this keyhole, there is a long gravel path, like an aisle of a church. And right through the trees is this perfectly framed image of St. Peter's Basilica. And so people will come and stand in line for a while to look through this keyhole to see this perfect image 
of St. Peter's. So I had never heard of this little keyhole, right? And when I was in Rome a couple years ago with, a, with the group, you all may have remember that last, the fall of 16, I was part of a group with the Archbishop of Canterbury to go and meet the Pope, you know. <laughs> um, and, and so we get to Rome, and I've never heard of this place, right? And as we drive up in our little bus, sure enough, there are a couple hundred people queued up to look through this keyhole. And I don't know what they're talking about, because this doesn't make sense to me, right? People are looking through a keyhole. What are you talking about? As we walk down the street, yes, I mean, they are, you know, in the keyhole, one by one, trying to do, you know, like, like put your camera right in the keyhole, try and get a picture of St. Peter's through the keyhole. And as we walk up, all of a sudden the doors open, and we go in for this little cocktail party, and I was like, hey, you know, other people, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's even prettier on the inside, but... The keyhole idea is sort of like the greatness of God, right? That's our faith. It doesn't matter how big it is. If you use it to look through and see and witness the greatness of God, that's all the faith you need. And so Jesus says to his disciples, don't make faith this ladder to success, right? Like you've got less faith and then more faith and then a lot of faith. And what you're really trying to do is get to like superior faith. Right? That's really not what this whole idea is about. Faith at all is all you need. And through faith, you see the greatness of God, and it is by seeing the greatness of God that your life is transformed over time. Now finally, Jesus ends with this significant idea in this first section. No matter what we do, and no matter how hard we work, God is never in our debt. Yikes. This is, this is a very hard idea because it makes sense on a very fundamental level that if we do good stuff, right? Jesus is asking us to be good people. And if we do a lot of good stuff, then good things will happen for us right? It just kind of makes sense. We live in this transactional economy, right? And Jesus says, not at all. God owes us nothing. And there's nothing that we do that will ever put God in our debt. And instead, why we do good and why we give, why we care for one another and love one another is out of gratitude for what has already been done to us. Now, where the rubber hits the road here is the idea that you can somehow earn blessing from God. No. Or that you have somehow done something wrong to lose the blessing. No. So, when you get cancer, it's not because you did something bad. That's not how that works. And if you get cancer, you can't start an orphanage for children in the middle of a third world country in order to be healed, right? That's just not how it works. And we really don't like this. I'll speak for myself. I really don't like this because we are an exceptionally able group of people, 
right? Most of the world reads this and they're like, sweet, right? Because they can't do anything anyway, right? They have no capacity to really do anything. They're just staying alive, right? For us though, we've got extreme capacity to do good. And man, we really like the idea that the more good we do, the more God kind of owes us, right? The more blessing we will have or we will be able to bless others kind of in reflection. This is not done. It does not matter how much you give. It does not matter how much you do. God does not owe us anything. However, if we look at our life, we have absolutely been blessed in countless ways. And the good that we do is in gratitude for that blessing. You know, I heard a preacher once say, talking about tithing, that God lets you keep 90%. And I thought, the theology of that is exactly right. Because it's not about, hey, would you give 10%? No. It's that God's blessed you with 90%. The 10% is just thank you, right? He could ask for more, but he doesn't. He's just thinking 10, that's good, right? That is how we say thank you. And we get to keep 90. And that sums up this idea right there. We'll move on to the next section after this, but any thoughts or questions before we get there? So the idea that if you uh, inherit faith rather than perhaps come to it, is that different? Okay, I, I can... So let me say this back to you. The question being, how does faith of people who came before us, family or whomever, kind of live in us, continue to live in us? I think that's a really lovely idea. I don't know that Jesus ever speaks directly to the idea of transferred faith because in essence, he's first generation, right? So there kind of isn't that just there. I think what he may say though is that it's harder to get it right if you have been formed in a particular way of faith, right? We are, our humanity pushes us to define things, right? We just don't like open-ended stuff. And so if Jesus says, love your neighbor, our immediate response is how, right? So tell me how, right? Because I'll do those things. So, and if I do those things, I don't have to do those things, right? I mean, isn't that kind of the way that we define it? Um, I remember someone said to me once, that theology is, was developed because if we actually just took Jesus at face value, we'd have to do it, right? Because what he is saying here is not complicated. It's hard to do, but this is not complex. This is not nuanced, right? Jesus is saying you love each other, and when you love each other, you forgive each other, and when you hurt one another, you ask for their forgiveness. The end. That's all it is. However, it's never enough for us. We want the definition. We want to know. And throughout history, 
very well-intentioned good people have tried to define the how does that work, right? How are we good Christians? And as they've defined things, they've disagreed. And whenever there's a big enough disagreement, they split. And all of our denominations exist because people at some point could not reconcile their disagreements. And so they went off on their own and did their own thing. Fundamentally, being brought up in any tradition means that you've got a bias. And I think it's very difficult, once you have a bias, to overcome it. You can work at it. But my guess is that the more we inherit, the harder it is for us to see the simplicity of the gospel. Because we often, I mean, look, look at what we are, right? Look at this space, right? It's a very pretty space. Most of you in here can probably in some way or other explain why we have that thing there and that thing over there, why that thing is a certain color or why that's not so high or it's low or whatever, right? And if you were to say to me, we can't have a baptism because we don't know where the Paschal candle is, that is a, that's an aesthetic statement, not a theological one, right? I mean, a Paschal candle is great. It represents the spirit. Is it actually the spirit? No. And that's where I think traditions that we inherit can, if we're not careful and conscious, trip us up. Doesn't mean all that stuff isn't lovely, but when we begin to think that it's more lovely than what it, that it actually is, what we say it represents, then we get in trouble. There you go. <laughs> you are so not satisfied. I can see it all over your face. <laughs> we'll keep going and think about it, and then ask, a, ask something else in a few minutes. <laughs> so let's go on to the story of the ten lepers. If humility was really the point of Jesus in this first section, then the middle section is gratitude. And he shifts from humility to gratitude by telling this pretty simple story. Jesus is traveling between Galilee and Samaria. And if you remember, which is probably not here, my lovely map, Galilee is in the northeast corner of Israel. And it is really the border between Israel, Syria, and Lebanon today. But back in the day, it would have been the border between Samaria and Galilee. Samaria, we've talked about Samaritans, are in essence long-lost cousins of the Jews in Jerusalem, right? So they're still Semitic people, but they're the ones that don't do it right. And so they live in a different region. And he's walking sort of between the two. So it's kind of like Arlington, right? He's sort of between the cities. And he's between these areas, which is where the outcast people would live. So he encounters these lepers when he is not in the city because they're not allowed to be in the city, right? When they get sick enough, like leprosy, they're sent out. And it's not that they're sent out to die. They are quarantined, right? We can misunderstand that, that they somehow are sent out 
and like good luck, right? That's not the case. Most, throughout most of the ancient world, they're sent out in order to not make other people sick. But it's not that the people who are still in the city don't care for them. And in fact, we've got lots of evidence that shows that people would do things like bring food to perhaps their loved one who's got leprosy, right? Now they won't touch them, they may not really talk to them, but they would leave things for them, right? So they're not looking for these people to die, they just simply want to stop the spread of whatever it is they have, right? But that's still really harsh. They're living separated, right? They are the outcasts, the outsiders. And Jesus is walking through the two populated areas and runs into these 10 lepers. The lepers, knowing that they should not touch anyone, kind of call out to Jesus. You know, they're not gonna to get too close to the people because they don't wanna be punished for it. But they call out to Jesus, please heal us. And Jesus says, go show yourself to the leaders. And as they turn to go show themselves to the leaders, they're healed. One of them turns right back around and runs and falls before Jesus to thank him, right? This is not just physical healing, right? If you think back to the way I just described this social structure, it picks someone in your family, right? I'm sorry, I keep saying right, I shouldn't say that. Pick someone in your family, attach to them leprosy. They, being a good person in your family, certainly does, they don't want to spread the leprosy to the other people in the family, and you don't want them to. And so they often mutually remove themselves, right? Because they love the rest of the family enough to not give them leprosy too. But you're talking about somebody that is a part of your family now being separated, basically for good. There was no cure here. And so although I can imagine that the person who returned was, yes, grateful for the physical healing, sure. But moreover, they can go home, right? This is a powerful thing. It's huge. And this foreigner returns to thank Jesus. And what does he say? Weren't 10 healed? Where are the other nine? In that moment, what Jesus is really saying is, gratitude matters. Gratitude matters, and this one foreigner has shown up all of the others. The implication here is that the others are Jewish, and that this foreigner is not. It's not explicit, but that's really the implication. When he uses the word foreigner, he implies the others are not. And so these nine that just ran off don't return thanks to God. Now they've been blessed, and here I think is, is really the trick, or the detail that's important. Nothing is said about the other nine not being healed, right? They're likely still healed. But what actually changed the foreigner's life is giving thanks for the healing. And how we know that is because Jesus says, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Get up. The Greek word here for get up is anastos. And anastos is the same root word for resurrection. Why it's important is he's not telling him to just stand up, but he's literally saying rise. Rise to new life.
right? Because you have given thanks, you are now entering a new life. You have been, in essence, saved, right? And your new life begins now. When we put this together, we may be blessed and we may do nothing to earn that blessing. But if we receive that blessing and our immediate response is not gratitude, we're actually missing the opportunity. Jesus presents us all with this opportunity and it's both blessing and thanksgiving. It's the combination of the two that gives us new life. Relatively simple story. And that's it for that middle section. Any questions or thoughts on that? I don't get into the Greek very often. I'll write this word down for you. Anastos. All right, last section. I hadn't really, I hadn't actually read through the whole chapter. I kind of do them section by section. I got this chapter and I thought, oh crap. I really don't want to do this section. So I toyed with the idea of just like, sorry, I'm suddenly running out of time. Um, but I decided that I shouldn't and I should just, you know, grow up and do it. A note about this section of chapter 17. You will never hear it read in church. This is one of those sections of Luke that is not in the lectionary. There are a few sections, and most of the time, the sections that are left out of the lectionary are sort of the segue bits that aren't actually saying much. This is a significant passage that is absolutely left out of the lectionary in order to save preachers, apparently. Um, but this is, this is some hard stuff. And I want to make a note it is very likely that whatever I'm about to do in the next 20 minutes, you will not find satisfying, and you might just have to live with it, um, because this is hard. I really don't know. This is my best guess at what this section is about. So, what we are talking about sounds very much like the apocalypse, all right? If you've not read this section, I'm actually going to read some of it to you because it's difficult to even grasp this if you haven't read a few verses. Just Jesus, in essence, sets up this idea that at some point, the end will come. And when the end comes, there is a way to respond to that moment. And in short, Jesus says, when trouble comes, run. This is what he says, starting on verse 28. Just as it was in the days of Lot, pause, Lot was the guy who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, right, that Abraham saved, except Lot's wife turned around and was made a pillar of salt. You've heard me say before that we've got these comics in the pre-sacristy. One of them has a guy carrying a big salt woman, and he says, and it says, um, it says that his name is Lot, and it says, sorry, Edith, the driveway is slick, 
and he's carrying the salt out to the driveway. Um, her name is not Edith. That's funny. Come on. Um, she's never named, but I just want to, we have to name who Lot is, right? Okay, we're back. Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed all of them. It will be like that on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, anyone on the housetop who has belongings in the house must not come down to take them away. And likewise, anyone in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Those who try to make their life secure will lose it. But those who lose their life will keep it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding meal together, one will be taken and the other left. Then they asked him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There are many ways to interpret this, but the most common way we all know is this idea of a rapture, right? There is this sense, kind of pervasive within Christianity for many people, that there will be a moment when those who are living are separated physically. Some will disappear or vanish or be taken up or whatever, and the others will stay, and those who stay will be the ones who suffer. There is an interesting twist to this story, though. There's nothing wrong with rapturous idea, right? We, we know, anyone read the Left Behind series? Like, I read it. It's kind of trashy, but it's fun. And the idea that we would have this rapture moment where all the good people suddenly vanish and all the bad people are left to just suffer through it, that is a... I hate to say that, but I have to admit, that is a relatively defensible interpretation, although it's more literal than I like, because Jesus, Luke, puts the story of Jesus in the middle of a much bigger story, and so we can't necessarily separate this story out from the rest. And what we've done is we've been talking about the idea of humility and gratitude, about what discipleship really is, these warnings about how to be good disciples. And so it's difficult for us to just take this passage right out of context and say, oh, what he's really talking about is the end of time's rapture. If, you, if someone does that, I cannot say that they are wrong for doing that, but I think we can do something better with this story by putting it into context. So you can take the idea of the rapture and sort of put it over here on a shelf. We're not going to go into all of that because I honestly don't really like that. Instead, I think there is a way of flipping this story within historical context. Remember when Luke is writing this gospel. Luke is writing this gospel sometime around 75 or 80. What happened in 70? Rome sacked Jerusalem, destroyed it. 
and they took a lot of the Jews out of Rome and spread them all over the place. This is something I don't think I've said to you all. There is, a, there is an idea called the diaspora, right? And many of you who have studied history know this idea within the Jewish tradition. The diaspora, D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A, is the moment when the Jews that had been collected in Israel were split up. What happened is that the Romans took these Jews and put them all over the empire in different little pockets. The reason Rome sacked Jerusalem in the first place is because the Jews were, were rebelling. And rather than having this mess in Israel, they just went in and took them out, destroyed the city, certainly destroyed the temple, and then took all of the Jews who sort of meant anything, right? Those who were in the merchants, the teachers, the leaders, took all of them and spread them all out over the empire. Why this is important is because when we fast forward to the anti-Semitic efforts in the 20th century, one of the things that we need to realize is that the only reason the Jews really couldn't defend themselves is because they were separated from one another. You had pockets of Jews in many different countries that were not united by language or really by even culture. And when they started to be killed, they couldn't amass enough defense. They didn't even have the numbers. We know all about this, right? Because what did we do? We, what did America do? We took all of the native people and separated them up into their own little pockets all over the country. Not because we liked them and wanted to give them special land. In fact, we put them on all the trash land. But instead, we wanted to make sure that they could never gang up together and threaten us. This is not, not new. So when the Jews were split up, is right before Luke writes this gospel. When Luke tells this story, there is still a very fresh memory about this awful devastation to their entire culture. And so the way that I interpret this passage is that Luke is putting this story together in the way that Jesus tells it as a way of actually providing strength to those who have been spread all over the world. How he's doing that is because he says, when you are taken away, there is still hope. And it's not the hope of like you've been sucked up into heaven, like modern rapture theology says. But instead, when you've been separated from your home, you can still be a faithful person where you are. We even see some of this imagery around the Roman stuff because the word for vulture that is here at the end of the passage is the same word for eagle. Why they pick vulture for, to translate this, I'm not entirely sure, but it's the exact same word in Greek. Ancient, um, the ancient Greeks, Israelites, 
thought vultures were a breed of eagle. And so they actually use the word here for eagle, and the eagle is the symbol of Rome. Eagles are on the breastplates of Roman soldiers. And so what Luke is really doing here is creating context around what was the most devastating experience to the Israelite people basically ever at that point. Yes, there was the exile hundreds of years ago, but this almost trumps the exile, right? And so how do we understand this? Especially if, put yourself in the evangelist context, what are they actually trying to convince people of? Jesus fulfills the messianic prophecies. How in the world can he do that if there is no more Judaism? There is no more temple. What then is the Messiah to do? And so Luke, throughout this entire gospel, is actually providing a vision for how you can find God in this post-temple reality, which is one of the reasons why Luke pushes this idea out to non-Jews, because this invitation is for every person, not just for the Jews. Because the truth is, Judaism as they knew it had ended. And it was being remade in real time while he was writing this gospel. I'm going to stop there real fast before we get to the end. Any questions or clarity around some of the historic context I just gave? Really? Great. Okay. So to sort of put this to the end, Jesus' inclusivity is a challenge to us. Because if we think back to the beginning of this chapter, we naturally like to define who's in and who's out. And at this point in this story, Jesus is challenging us to make sure that everyone can be in, and that it is us who actually issue those invitations, right? Yes, God has done so through his son, but we are the ones who inherit, so to speak, this faith idea, whether it's new to us or whether we were raised in it. And we're the ones who receive the challenge to make sure that as many people as possible are invited into this life. But this lifestyle, this saving life is not easy. Because if we look at the 10 lepers, it is most natural for us to simply take what we get and run. But instead, it's this ongoing relationship, blessing and gratitude, blessing and gratitude, back and forth and back and forth, that actually give us entry into the kingdom of God. Jesus says, remember how this last passage began. Before Jesus got into all the apocalypse language, in verse 20 he says, or Luke says, once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, 
the kingdom of God is among you. Jesus leaves this section of the gospel with the challenge to say, the kingdom of God is not some place you will go at some point. It is a true unity with God. And that the opportunity for unity is yours right now. And that you can rise, right, Anastos? You can rise into the new reality of this kingdom now. That's hard for us because we've got a concept of eternal life. And I got a good question following last week's Bible study that sort of, that basically pushed me to say, what really is eternal life? Because although I like to say we don't know, we do in a way know that eternal life is when this kingdom is realized and that this kingdom realization is something we are actually working toward. So Christianity is not some sort of, yes, I make the choice, Jesus is my savior, now when I die, I won't burn. That's not the best of Christianity. It's a challenge and a push for us right now to change our world, right now. And so from the Catechism in our Book of Common Prayer, in case you don't know this, there is a section in the Book of Common Prayer called the Catechism. It's relatively brief. It makes the Catholic Catechism look very long. And it says, what do we as Episcopalians, as Anglican Christians, mean by everlasting life? What the Catechism says is by everlasting life, we mean a new existence in which we are united with all the people of God in the joy of fully knowing and loving God and one another. And then it says, what then is our assurance, our assurance as Christians? It says our assurance as Christians is that nothing, not even death, shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What this really means is that it's okay to imagine that we will see those we love and see no longer at some point. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with imagining that there is an actual reality that we cannot understand in which we will enter after we die. That's okay too. What is problematic is to think that we do nothing now and are simply waiting for our reward. That is not okay. As Christian people, we are living right now today with the hope of changing the world today to bring about the kingdom. And so I'll leave you sort of with the idea or the question what can you do? What can we do today to actually extend and expand that kingdom in even just a little way? Because each one of us has that power. Each one of us has that opportunity and the expectation with God to actually make a change in the world today that can help realize the kingdom. Last thought or question? Then go on, kingdom people. <laughs> I'll see you next week. Thank you.